Please be seated. Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 1. This summer we have been looking, our study has been titled Postcards from God. We've been looking at the single chapter books of the Bible and some others that are uh, just a couple of chapters. Uh, those of you familiar with your Bibles might automatically recognize that 1 John is uh, more than one and more than two. It's a few uh, chapters long, although it's still a relatively short letter. And so we're just going to pretend that rather than a postcard uh, this morning, uh, that what we have is somebody is sending you pictures uh, by their texting. So you're getting snapshots of a much bigger picture here uh, this morning of uh, something. But nevertheless, it is still God speaking to us. Uh, shaping us, and my hope is also preparing us to experience uh, the glory of his grace when we come to this table in a few moments. This passage this morning is probably familiar to many of you, uh, but even if it's a review, uh, then allow that to shape you for the grace that we get to eat and to drink in a few moments. 1 John Chapter 1, beginning our reading in verse 8, I'll read through verse 10. Our focus will be verses 8 to 9 this morning. Hear the word of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The word of our God. Let's go to him now. I ask that by his spirit he would speak to us this morning. Our Father, we do come and thank you for the word that you've given us, even as we take portions of it uh, to look at and to ponder. We pray that your spirit, your voice would speak to us that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to prepare for the seed of your word to bear fruit, uh, that you would shape the way that we would think so that our thoughts might become your thoughts and we would be renewed in our minds, and that that which we think would become kindling for our heart, that that which we know to be true of both you and the way that you see things uh, would become the delight and the desire of our hearts. Shape us during this time that we consider your word, that we might be shaped to be more like Christ, and therefore a picture of the world, to the world, not of our goodness, but of your grace and your work within and upon your people. Bless us, use us, and be pleased in us, we pray, to the glory of the name and for the sake of Christ. Amen. According to Cherokee history, when a young Methodist missionary wanted to bring the Bible to the Cherokee people, the chief, a man named Yanaguska, wanted to check things out for himself before he would allow the circulation of this thing, this book that he had never seen. And so the missionary left him a copy of his Bible and went about his way, came back a few weeks later, uh, and continued in the relationship, in the conversation, and part of the conversation he asked if the chief had had opportunity to read through uh, the Bible that was left for him. And Yanaguska reportedly responded and said that he had read through it, 
And he said, it, it seems to be a good book, but it leaves me with really just one question. I, I wonder why the white people who have had it for so long aren't any better. <laughs> and that's a tremendous question. It's a question that I ask myself on a regular basis. Having had the privilege of having had this book for so long, and even in, in my case, having been trained to study it in its original languages, and uh, given the privilege to be able to study it so that I, I can teach it, I have to stop as I look at my life and look at my heart and very often ask myself, having had this privilege, why am I not any better? John very succinctly gives us the answer to that question for my life, for your life, and for all of those that were being questioned by Chief Yanaguska. And in a very simple answer, the answer is because of sin. Sin in our world, sin in our lives. So what John says in, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And when we read that, it's very important that we understand that John is writing this to believers, to people who have already trusted in Christ, acknowledged that they had need, that they had not been holy and pure, that they had failed to measure up to the standard of God's holiness and commands. And therefore, having already repented and trusted and been made believers, John is writing to them in order that they might be instructed. John's writing to us that we might be instructed to understand these words in that light. Even as believers, if we claim to be without sin, we are kidding ourselves. To whatever extent we're in denial of it, we don't have the truth. And verse 10 tells us we actually then, if we really believe that, we're declaring God to be a liar. It's quite clear he is declaring that we all, whether believer or unbeliever, have a sin problem. Clinical psychologist Henry Cloud had written in a book that he wrote called Changes That Heal. He says that the sad thing is that many of us come to Christ because we know we are sinners and then spend the rest of our lives trying to pretend that we're not. And the reason that we do that could be many. I suspect it's because some of us were taught that once we had to become Christians that the victorious Christian life was evident and therefore as we strive to live in a way that reflects the holiness of God and in accordance with his commands that to be a Christian is to not sin and therefore we spend our lives putting our best foot forward perhaps for the sake of mission, perhaps for the sake of witness. I suspect for many of us, certainly for me, it's for the sake of people thinking better of me than I deserve. It may be that you weren't specifically taught that, but if you go to any church, at least any church that I've ever been a part of, and you watch the people, both those in the pews and in the pulpit, it'd be very easy to get the idea that somehow these people that are gathered feel like they have their act together. Therefore, if you want to fit in, you either must get your act together or at least play along and pretend that you have your act together so that nobody will think that you should be disqualified from the fellowship in it that way. And it may simply be by logical deduction. We are told not only that we are forgiven of our sin, but we are told that 
the whole idea of growing spiritually is to die to our sin and to grow in the righteousness of Christ. And those who are walking with Christ, no doubt, do see the reality of a change in their life, change of attitude, change of behavior. And so therefore it makes sense. Sin is not doing what we ought to be doing. We want to be doing what we ought to be doing. And so therefore we make that commitment and we don't focus on our failures as much as we focus on uh, on what we want to be and, and uh, on our successes. And it doesn't necessarily mean somebody's putting on pretense there. But I think sometimes we misunderstand what sin is in the first place and what John is dealing with. We tend to focus on sin as being that which is our behavior that is out of accord with the commands of God. And yet God has told us that certainly that qualifies a sin when we consider the common definition of sin as missing the mark. And therefore we realize only it's when our, our behavior is not perfect is the way God wants us to be. But God tells us over and over throughout the scriptures that sin is actually a condition, not the behavior. The shorthanded way of saying it sometimes is, look, we don't sin. Uh, we, we are not declared sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. It is the very nature of the fallen humanity, and we continue to struggle with it even after we have been redeemed and we become believers. And yet someone forgot to tell us that that's the condition that we have. Now, being honest about the condition we have, we need to deal with it. John is making this very necessary corrective for those who would be followers of Jesus Christ to be able to get real with themselves and acknowledge that no matter where you are on the spectrum, sin is an issue that affects every one of us to one degree or another. And John is writing this so that we'll understand and that we can deal with it. And John tells us though, however, that not only is sin the problem, but he also gives us the solution. We see that in verse nine. And he, we're told very simply this, acknowledging that we all struggle with this uh, sin that continues to be alive within us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. This is the, the great promise of, of the gospel that everyone who believes, and I know John's not talking about belief here, we need to understand that a lot of times the, the, the writers of the epistles use shorthand and they'll deal with one aspect of, of this and sometimes it's belief, but there is no belief without also repentance and there is no confession here without also believing when we confess we also need to be reminding ourselves and John's using a shorthand here talking about the consistency with sin that we believe that there is sin and we confess our sin but we would never confess our sin if there wasn't something to believe and there wasn't a purpose and the, what we believe is what John is saying when we acknowledge that when we confess before God and confession is part of repentance when we repent we confess to God that we have sinned that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us that we are trusting in, God is faithful and he forgives us of our sin. That's the reason we come and celebrate. It's, it was embedded in the songs that we sang this morning, that we sing every morning. It's embedded in the hope that we have. And that while God is worthy to receive all worship regardless, none of us would probably bother, or very few of us would, if, if there wasn't any reason for celebration. If we all stood condemned for our sin as we deserve, there, there's not a whole lot of reason to, to celebrate, even though God himself is worthy to receive it. And so here, John is not only pointing out the reality of our condition, which is an explanation as to why you and I are not what we want to be yet, 
no matter how much better we may have been in the past, but why we continue to struggle. But he's also pointing us to the solution, which is that we are to confess, acknowledge, and then take our confession to God and confess to him against you and you only have I sinned. And however it is that we have turned from God, not only in our behaviors, but in our attitudes and our hearts as well. And what a glorious promise it is, is that we are forgiven as we take our confessions and offer them uh, to God. That, that's the promise of the gospel. And while this is a glorious promise, and really a, a simple way of relating to God, I have to confess for a, a long time, when I would think about it, I mean really think about it, I had a problem that I wasn't able to resolve. I understood the promise that was being made here. It doesn't seem to have any boundaries, any limits. But when I looked in my own life and the sin that you call it the besetting sin, things that I just didn't seem to be able to shake, or the sins in my life that I had thought were in the rearview mirror, and then all of a sudden I look forward and it's right staring me right in the face again and again and again to the point that you get frustrated because every time you think that you have defeated it, put it to death, it seems to be alive and well and at work and influencing the way that I think, the way that I feel, and then sometimes even the way that I act. And then I would look at this promise and saying that you are forgiven and that is a great comfort, but then there just seems to be this incongruity. I, I should be better. And the word just here is points to us as something that is true throughout the scriptures. It's the picture of just justice, and we, we should look at this particular passage and have in view as if there is a, a courtroom here. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus is our advocate. Essentially, he is our, our defense attorney, and he is on the right hand of the Father right now, or he is in the presence of the Father who is the judge, and he is advocating on our behalf, interceding on our behalf right now. And as I pictured him in my mind, interceding and advocating for me, I kind of wondered what he was saying this time. I pictured God as the judge and me standing before him and him kind of having that look on his face that says, you again? And then wonder what Jesus is, is going to say. And so in my head, it would have looked something like this, as that Jesus is standing before the judge and saying, your honor, I know my client's an idiot but have mercy. And I wrestled with that until I heard an older and wiser, godlier man share just how profound of a picture is painted by this verse and particularly the addition or the inclusion of the word just here. Doesn't change the picture from the courtroom. It doesn't change the players in the courtroom. God the Father is still the judge. Jesus is still our advocate. And I'm still standing there, yet again, guilty of the same things that I have been either consistently or so many times before. But Jesus, our advocate, is not standing before the Father and declaring, Have mercy on my client. You know, I know he's an idiot. That's an understood, the idiot part for at least when I'm standing there. But what Jesus is declaring is this. Father, you must pardon him. Or, Your Honor, you must pardon him. 
because I've already paid the penalty for every offense. And therefore, if you were to pronounce judgments or sentence in any way, it would be unjust to penalize someone whose penalty has already been paid. You must pardon. And we understand, according to what John is telling us here, that while it is true for every one of us that we have struggled with sin to one degree or another still in our lives, and that there is a need for us to confess, not only to unburden, but to stand. We are saved not merely by God's mercy, but by his nature, which is just. And he who sent his own son has paid the price for our sin. We stand forgiven on the basis of God's own character, not through any merit or plea bargaining of our own. That itself is a glorious, glorious message, but it still doesn't deal with the whole picture of what the Christian life is to be. And perhaps the reason that we get confused about this whole sin issue in the first place. Because we are pardoned, but nevertheless, we still have this condition within us. We still struggle. God has called us to grow, to become better. The word is sanctification, which theologically means it's the process by which we die to sin. And God in his grace enables us to grow more and more to be like Christ, to be holy, to be righteous in God's sight. And John addresses that in the simple passage as well. Because while there is a reality of sin, there is also the solution, which is Christ giving his life. Therefore, justice has already been met for everyone who is to confess and to believe. But we also see if we are faithful to confess, he's faithful and just not only to forgive, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a picture of the sanctification that he has begun. It's a reminder that he began the work within us has promised to continue that work within us, and we'll see that work done through until we are all standing pure and holy before our God. But he is the one who is at work in that process in us, and what he calls us to do is to confess, which requires that we acknowledge we recognize, we have a self-awareness of not only that we have sin, but what our sin is, that we can confess that to the Father, and then to believe the promise that John is laying out here that's laid throughout the whole Bible, from the Old Testament pointing forward to the sacrifice that would come, which is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and from all the pages from the crucifixion on that remind us that Jesus has been the one who in our place stood took the punishment that we deserved in order that we might be pardoned and be set free. But there is a power, we are told, this is the power of that gospel that brings life. Our part in this process is to be aware, confess, believe. And God's part is to continue to show us the reality of our brokenness, our sin, our need of that gospel, and this Holy Spirit within us not only exposes that, but cleanses us and strengthens us. Because even though we are still all infected and affected by sin, it doesn't have authority over us. And we are able to say no, and more and more we're able to do that. And yet, we don't get the picture here that that struggle will come to an end in this life. 
because otherwise he would have had to qualify what he's saying, wouldn't he? John would have had to say, now for some of you, if you claim you have no sin, you're kidding yourself. But this is for all of us in this life. And there is a glorious picture and a glorious freedom that John is giving us here. He is reminding us and, and, and explaining to us our condition. He's helping us see what the issue is in our lives. Why at times we have broken relationships. Why at times we are self-oriented. Why at times we struggle. Why, as the Apostle Paul says, we do what we don't want to do and don't do what we want to do. And understanding what John is saying helps some of us to begin to get real. Because while the people around us may pretend to have their act together, or maybe they have their act together more than we do, when we acknowledge our own struggle, we are simply living out what God says is true of us. Let me just finish with this this morning. This whole concept is confusing, but it is nothing that is new. In 1521, Martin Luther was writing to his protege, a man named Philip Melanchthon. And listen to what he says. This is a letter that he wrote to a, a, another minister encouraging him in the messages that he is teaching, not to his congregation only, but also to himself. Luther says this, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but a true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner. And let your sins be strong or sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. See, this is the message that John is trying to convey to us today through the word that we are looking at. It's not an encouragement to go out and do things that are contrary to God's word. He's not saying, go sin. He's saying, look, you already have plenty. But rather than denying it, rather than suppressing it, in, in terms of the way that you acknowledge it, rather than minimizing the extent that you have that in your life, let it out. Not engage in something, but... Take it before God. Acknowledge the fullness of it. Search the depths of it within your heart. Because as we confess, God is both faithful and just to both forgive us and cleanse us from that which we are bringing before him. And enables us to love him more. Because it was the Lord himself who declared, he who is forgiven much, loves much.